Okay, so sorry for the feedback if that got through. Um, welcome to the Truth to Power show in Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. And um, let me see. All these different windows are open. Um, so let's see. So now this is a episode with Noah Phillips, who is a mental health worker, organizer, artist, and bardo voyager, currently based in Long Island City, the traditional territory of the Canarsie, and Munzi Lenape. Welcome, Noah. Thank you. Welcome. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so why I thought the feedback was part of the intro. I thought the feedback was like this Twilight <laughs> Zone, like, like sort of sci-fi consciousness piercing intro. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's good. It's good. And then, uh, you know, how we kind of disrupt normal life and kind of you know question everything question everything like, wake up the aliens are here they're like <laughs> coming yeah, yeah yeah so why don't we talk a little bit about uh this past year 2020 and 2021 and how that's affected everyone's mental health i think that um you know we have a, a stark divide in the camps here uh you know between the people who feel like 2020 was like the worst disruptive year and it was a disruptive year but there are also people who feel like it was a possibility or opportunity for awakening and an opportunity for like real real progress made in our lives and real a real opportunity there so what do you think about that i mean they're both true right like i think disruption is um disruption can be transformative yeah i mean in my 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 2020 was hugely transformative and hugely disruptive. I started the year working in mental health, uh, living in Brooklyn, where I lived for five years and ended the year at a arts residency in Queens, um, not not working in mental health, but doing a lot of art and thinking about mental health. Um, and a lot happened in between. So just the Queens from Brooklyn transition itself, hugely disruptive and transformative, right? But um, uh, no, they're, they're both, Disruption is necessary to kind of push us a lot of the time, of course. Um, anybody who's grieving the, the loss of loved ones, I mean, grief can be really transformative, too. I lost two people this last year. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah. So how have you been handling the year as a whole, though? 2020? Yeah, 2020. Like, how, have you, how was your perception, ultimately? What is your take on it? like as being a, a kind of a disruptive year and year that, you know, people kind of mark down as being like, oh, you know, let's just ignore it, erase it or whatever it is. Uh, or is it just another year? I don't know. That's such an interesting question because it's exactly, I like, you can't choose one. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. And just like when, when, like it was a fucking, excuse my language, I didn't, <laughs> it's a, it like a hard, intense, year and just like we have hard intense parts of our lives you can't just be like oh i'm gonna erase that little chapter yeah those leave those those episodes leave lasting scars or imprints or or whatever um but you have to embrace them in order to be a well-rounded human being you can't be like oh yeah 2020 didn't happen of course it happened we were all there we all remembered it it was really powerful yeah a great communal experience of like yeah. a great communal experience of like a disruptive mm -hmm. a disruption a worldwide phenomena that really you know um connected us all with this 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 shared trauma or this shared 
shared experience. And then, um, mm -hmm. but thinking about it in terms of mental health, it's like, you know, it also brought, brought up, brought up to the lens, the idea of privilege and oppression, how, mm -hmm. um, you know, some of us were more fortunate, you know, in our positioning, you know, some of us had full-time jobs throughout the pandemic, we're receiving paychecks and other people were really struggling. So it really, it really brought to bear the idea of privilege and oppression and how uh, economic oppression and the idea of like, uh, you know, valuing and, and leveraging that oppression, leveraging that privilege, I mean, uh, leveraging that privilege that then we can call attention to the idea that people, some of our brethren are economically oppressed and all this, yeah. 100%. And also it, it put into really stark, stark relief the role of the government in, yeah. um, in addressing or making worse those disparities. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, I think it, had we had any other president, the pandemic would have played out very differently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think this, this past president, uh, thankfully I can say past president. Yeah. I'm so glad to say that. Um, only a month ago that is, we were, yeah, very recent ago, yeah. like if our democracy was going to like make it through 2020, like, I mean, whatever our democracy is, people have yeah. different views on that, but yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, and talking about art and the creation of art. Uh, and how art can help us as catharsis, as, as process, as part of a process. You commented a little bit at that, but what's your take on how the role of art in the mental continuum is artistic process, if you will? Well, in, to my mind, the role, there are a lot of different directions that can go in with that, but it, for me, my artistic process mirrors my mental health process um, in that there's a period of time when I want to create something or be something or feel a certain way. And uh, it takes a while for the pieces to come together. And in the meantime, it's very uncomfortable and very um, uh, a lot of thinking and a lot of agonizing and a lot of uh, trying to get it right and not getting it right and feeling like, well, I want to give up or stay in bed or whatever. Um, mm. And, but eventually often comes some sort of breakthrough or some kind of transition, transition or um, usually really just a moment when I wake up and don't feel like I have to overthink it. I feel like it can just come naturally. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, everything I just said is true of both art and mental health. I, I view all these things as kind of um, recursive cycles. So um, you just had a exhibit, I believe, that just closed. Mm -hmm. Tell yeah. us a little bit about that and what the name of it was. It was called The Gift in the Wound. I have to deinstall it today. Um, and it's about, although if anybody who's listening wants to come, I can put off deinstalling it until later in the day if you happen to want to get in touch with me yeah. um, and come see it. Um, it's in-person art. So it was called The Gift in the Wound. Um, it was about the the way that, I mean, it was about exactly this, how, how the things that we carry around with us that are wounds either from our childhood or from society or from our own minds or, or um, diseases or disabilities or, or whatever it is 
the, these wounds when we kind of confront them and go into them or you know our shadow parts or our traumas um when we can kind of look back at them with a sort of firm but compassionate gaze and say hello um <laughs> I've been running from you for years. I've been resisting you for years, as long as I can remember. And now I'm actually going to like look at you directly and, and yeah. find out what it is that you want. Um, that moment is hugely powerful. Um, the moment of standing in your vulnerability that way, um, of facing your what you perceive to be weaknesses, and um, it makes you really strong. Um, and not only can it make you strong. And I don't mean to be flippant about it, um, or or sort of Pollyannish about it, because um, it, it can continue to be a source of pain and struggle. Mm. Uh, but uh, one often might find a gift in that wound, um, and you can that that gift can enrich not only your life but the life of your community. Um, and so that's what the the show is aiming to celebrate, is that kind of resilience. Um, I initially thought of the, I conceptualized the show around a couple of people I had met in the mental health world um, who are very marginalized by their wounds um, and by their experiences. And unfortunately, none of those people that I had in mind um, were able to participate in the show because of I mean, despite my willingness and good heartedness and all the things, and I sort of did due diligence, but none of them, arguably because of the very factors that marginalize them from society, were able to participate in the show. So in that way, the show didn't succeed. Um, but at least, I mean, yeah. So they inspired they inspired this other process, and we had some amazing, amazing artists in the show. We have. But I can. That's a different question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's good. That's good. And uh, thinking about how this truth that you know the the processes of um, uncovering when we when we encounter negative or perceived negative emotion and it can be, can be more broadly applied. I think that when we when we're kind of dealing with any kind of negative processes, we're thinking about what 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 is it teaching us and what is the gift that it's giving us. Because especially when they're persistent, they're there for a reason, and they're there to kind of show us something or gift us with something. And um, you know, this is an essential truth that I think is empowering. And if you could talk a little bit about how that empowerment um, reveals itself in people or in yourself or in, in your process, like uh, so, do you just do you do like what is your practice? The practice basically is artistic, like to express it, or is that kind of how I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, is it is it kind of like um, the like the drawing kind of helps reveal the lesson, or how does how do you think that process works? Um, like specifically around art. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, you're kind of allowing your creativity flow, and it's kind of revealing itself. Does it like what? Is, what do you hope your viewer will gain from? Like, how does that communication happen between you and the viewer? You and the 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 participant or the person who's receiving how do you think that well i guess i hope that the person who's receiving whatever i create gets a little bit of life from it yeah, yeah. a little bit of you know encourage you know heart from it um mm. a little bit of vibrance from it um 
I mean, for me, a lot of my um, wounds or I don't know, a lot of what I've been trying to overcome has to do with how much I overthink things and how much I, I rationalize things and um, how, how much time I spend gaming things out in a completely pointless way because <laughs> the universe doesn't, because it's, it, because and this is this is true of my art. If I if I sit down and plan out the art project, all the juice goes out of the art project, and I don't. It and the result is I don't like the result. Mm. Um, and but if I can find a way to cultivate that spontaneity, um, where I'm not necessarily thinking about what I'm going to do, I'm just doing it. Mm. Um, that's when I find that there's some real life in my artwork, and so I my my hope is that I mean, and that's a that's when I do that when I cultivate this spontaneity and create from that place. Um, it feels good to do for me, yeah. and so I I hope I guess in terms of the relationship with the viewer that um, it feels good for them too. Mm. So thinking about. Um... What experience did you reflect on as a watershed moment in your own process? That's the question. So what experience do you reflect on that was like a watershed moment in your own process? Um, I don't know if this is one of the questions that I wrote in advance. Yeah, yeah. you talked a little bit about uh, mushrooms. Oh, mushrooms? No, yeah. not mushrooms. Well, okay, I have what just occurred to me um, in terms of my process around mental health. Yeah, psychedelics, entheogens. Um, I haven't actually done mushrooms. Okay, yeah, um, I was just trying. I had to look up the term entheogens. Since, yeah, uh, I, they said it was mushrooms, but I wasn't sure. Well, entheogen is sort of a broad term for. Um, at least my understanding is that it's a broad term for what people usually call psychedelic drugs. Um, oh, okay, yeah, but it's it's a little bit less dismissive it's less associated with the culture of the you know 60s and 70s and and um all the all the sort of attendant social baggage that comes with that so but it it's yeah it's um it's substances um plant-based primarily um that get you in touch that are like god creating that's what mm. um so that was definitely a turning point in my mental health life was when I tried one of these um, for the first time in a sort of safe environment that was about intention and about, uh, you know, set and setting uh, that wasn't just like at a party or, or anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember I was in social work school um, when I, at the time, um, and I was with a a family member that I trusted. And um, as I, as the substance was sort of coming on, I remember very, very clearly this sort of plea in my brain for um, to show me something different, you know, to, to like get me out, to get me out, like an escape, you know, like I, I, I had been feeling at that time very disappointed in myself and very disappointed in my life and just in the world and just like I felt like this isn't this can't be it like this doesn't feel um like just I I, I admitted to myself talk about gifts and wounds that I, I 
felt like a bit of a failure. Um, and I, so I, I was sort of asking the, the psychedelic gods for just a bit of fresh air, like something, something. And really what I wanted was my, my ego, my, my, my rational conscious mind was admitting its inability to create the kind of life that I wanted. Um, mm. And so the substance that I had, I mean, showed me something different. Um, and it didn't just show me, but, you know, it was embodied. I like could, it was, it was um, expansive. It was mind expanding. And so um, that was a turning point in that I um, began to believe in, in a, in a more colorful and um, exciting and mystical cosmos. Um, and that gave me some, some hope. Now, from a artistic standpoint, actually, when you just asked that question, I had forgotten what I'd written before. Yeah, a different answer came to me. Should I share that or no, whatever, whatever comes up with you is fine. Um, but the, the main question is like, how like I'm trying to understand, I'm trying to parse out from that is that like, did you have a threshold where it's like your vision for mental health changed, right? You had like, you basically is what you're saying is your vision for and ground mental health changed and specifying like, you know, in what way or in what, in what way did it manifest and understanding like, you know, we have the spiritual realizations, but kind of quantifying that in a way, like how, you know, you, you mentioned about having spiritual realizations, but really what does that kind of translate to mean? Well, until that experience, I wasn't actually necessarily interested in mental health. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So until that experience, I, I was in social work school, <laughs> like a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of young people, especially who just like, I want to help the world. Yeah. I want to heal others. Right. Like, um, but like, I don't know how to do it. And I have like, nothing else to be doing in my 20s so i guess uh -huh. i'll just go to social work school yeah. <laughs> um, and that's i mean a lot of a lot of people in social work schools find themselves there that way a lot of people find their way there and the i think the much more effective social workers find themselves in social work school because they have personal experience with the um whatever population or whatever issues it is that they want to work with and that's a very different story and i'm not trying to denigrate uh, that experience at all but mm -hmm. for me uh, I went to social work school kind of on a lark um, and I found myself and which you know I hated myself for also like it was another thing that was like oh my my brain let me down again um, so that was part of why I was feeling so down on myself and then after this experience uh, with the entheogens um, found myself I I experienced this you know revolutionary moment um, where you know there are different entities and there are different sensations and you are familiar with and you see things and you you know talk to you interact with with things and um, and you and so I was like what what is all this <laughs> like what um, who who are these entities like you know i i and i suddenly felt um 
fascinated by schizophrenia um, by because you know these are people diagnosed with schizophrenia are people who because of their traumas or because of their um, abilities or because of their backgrounds or um, can can or are forced to do this organically do this themselves um, mm. and can or are forced to I mean that's in this culture it's it's seen as a burden and so it's experienced as a burden in other cultures it's not in other cultures it's celebrated as a gift um, the ability to speak with spirits and just interface with the spirit world um, or with one's ancestors or whatever it is so anyway I this kind of sent me on a on a path to um, learn about what this was um, and how to sort of support people who are experiencing distress in these in these realms. Um, and I went to a training uh, at the Institute for the Development of Human Arts, which is a training institute based in New York um, that supports alternative um, transformative models of mental health. And this this class was called Supporting Altered States. And it was fascinating. It was led by people who had experienced um, you know, what people call psychotic breaks, but also people call spiritual emergence, people call um, all kinds of people conceptualize it really differently. Um, and my mind continued to just expand and also to sort of connect the dots between the, the like, really intense and embodied experiences, like my own experience of um, not just the psychedelic one, but also uh, my feeling up and down, my like my my diagnosis um, with cyclothymia, which is a mild form of bipolar disorder. Um, you know, all of these my which I don't really believe in that diagnosis anymore. But um, I was diagnosed with that at the time because I went out and I like, got myself a diagnosis because I wanted an explanation for why I kept feeling so terrible. Mm. Um, and that was that was the one most accessible to me at the time. Um, but in any case, it Ida allowed me to connect my experience, just living in the world, um, and the concept or the sort of field of mental health. Um, and that was, I guess, a watershed moment in my process. Thank you, thank you, very good. And I think that when you talk about vulnerability, when we think about like how going to those vulnerable places and like really discovering things, I think is what I'm getting out of that. Really discovering about your passions, about what's what's the current underlying that conscious mind, that ego mind. You know, it's like that car. There's a real flow there that uh, we all have and that connects us all. That this is kind of a point of discovery of like tapping into that flow and then understanding. Okay, there are underlying reasons why. You're propelled in certain areas, you know, and uh, Buddhism, we think about like the winds of our karma, you know, like we're kind of blown by the winds of our karma, blown by the winds of like, you know, our actions. So um, the previous actions, I mean, so in other words, like saying so you got you found yourself in social worker school in the master's program and then you're like, then you discovered your passion for it through this ethogenic substance and then that kind of uncovered that flow for you. I think that's what I kind of understanding, right? 
Yeah, that's a really nice way to think about it, actually. I've yeah. never heard the term, but um, I am familiar with Buddhism and think about... Now I think that's sort of the primary lens through which I view mental health um, yeah. and all these sort of other phenomena that are connected to it. Um, but I love, yeah, I like I like that. Yeah, especially when we think of Bardo Voyager, I really like that term in your bio, like the idea that, uh, you know, kind of the Bardo being in between states and like being kind of the, the process between life and life, you know, and like kind of the intermediate state and like voyaging through intermediate states, even in life, like we're constantly going through that. We're constantly kind of experiencing the, the idea of, you know, they consider uh, sleeping even, falling asleep, like a mimicking the process of dying. So it's like when we kind of go through that sleeping process, we can kind of call attention to the idea that we're like voyaging between, between waking states. You know? And for me, what I feel like, what I, my intention behind using that term is that I get lost in, in, in my own mind, or I get lost in karma. I get, I, I forget, I lose contact with what I experience as the truth, right? Of, mm -hmm. of you know, connectedness and, and, and um, lots of stuff. Um, God, you know, I, and then I'm, I'm, for the last week or so, I was just kind of, for instance, wandering in this kind of like feeling crappy <laughs> state where I, I forgot so much of what makes me alive i like knew what it was but i like didn't know how to do it and then actually this morning i woke up today and i was like oh i'm back great thank you yeah so also i want to talk a little bit about more that um you brought up um you know social and economic equity we started a little bit of that conversation justice reform and much ways in which they overlap with mental health like talking a little bit about how you know do you think it's like for example like um you know, you were talking a bit about diagnosis and receiving diagnosis and whether or not uh, that's helpful or whether or not that's not helpful for people to, you know, I feel I feel like to some extent people have to go out and just get themselves a diagnosis. They're not necessarily being evaluated. They're just being like, well, let's give you a diagnosis. I have my bag of diagnoses, you know, and whether or not that's effective or whether or not that's just deteriorating the state of people's mental health. I don't know. What is your opinion on that? Well, first of all, I think that having a diagnosis can be incredibly validating and and liberating for people if they've been trapped in an experience that they don't and they think that they're alone or they think that they're bad or whatever. So I think the step from mental health being a moral issue to it being a medical issue can yeah. be nice for people. Um, that said, diagnoses are socially constructed. Um, like most other socially constructed things in our society, they're racialized and they're um, sexualized and they're gendered. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, if you are black in the city, you're, and you and you find yourself in a in a social worker's office, you're more likely to walk out with um, certain diagnoses than someone who's white, like yeah. myself, in that same office. And not only that, but you're you're your trauma patterns are going to be different uh, because of the society that we live in. Um, and not only that, but diagnoses are completely, utterly bound up with the social services system and also with the um, so-called justice system. Um, and so it's political <laughs> in those ways too, and economic. Um, and so it, it can be 
validating for people to to no longer feel personally guilty about hearing things or seeing things or being depressed or um, whatever it is. But it the it's it's it what it really does is give you a and it gives you a sense of hope, but but it gives you a sense of hope um, to like buy into to to get your way back into the broken society in a way it's yeah. it's like a sort of it's a it's a um it's a it's a lens it's one particular lens and it's a lens with a bias toward a false sense of normalcy i don't know if that makes sense but um mm. you know the goal if you were diagnosed with a mental illness is to um either manage it and just you're going to have it for the rest of your life which used to be the position or now since more recently, there's the recovery movement, which is to recover, but that means just sort of like going back to your nine to five and having your wife and kids or your husband and your kids and just kind of like fitting yourself back into the cookie cutter mold. Um, my my view is that in order to really address all of our mental health, we need to transform society, which in, to me, the, the path for that is, is focusing on experiences yeah yeah and also i think that we have to understand that mental health is a continuum and that uh you know it's kind of like our experiences fall within that continuum we all it's not like i think a lot of people have this impression that oh certain people are mentally ill and certain mm -hmm. people are not mentally ill mm -hmm. whereas like i think that we have this continuum in mental health that have been talked about in the show many times before but um that we all kind of experience down periods, we all experience our breaks and all that kind of thing, and we all experience our positive periods. So people, even people who are diagnosed have like ups and downs and people who are not diagnosed have ups and downs. So this kind of connects us all in our human experience, yeah. A thousand percent, a thousand yeah. percent. And also, I mean, that's true with um, diagnoses like schizophrenia too, that's true of um, so-called personality disorders, that's, called, yeah. that's true of everything in the DSM is, every. there's nothing, binary at all about mental health mm. they're all yeah. just shaped human experience yeah exactly, and, exactly. Yeah. yeah yeah and then what was coming to mind was about um i was thinking about something um like we were talking about facing our fears shadows and traumas um and how unlocking that can unlock and can unlock something like confronting them head on and like talking about you know it can be a process in which it can unlock something really truly beautiful mm -hmm. and, and and you know um i think that you know the drive i think human drive or human ambition really comes from addressing and looking at the negative spaces if you will the perceived negative spaces you know human ambition comes from there's some need out there i'm going to go out and address it i'm going to go out and, and look at it head on there's some underlying need in society or in myself more primarily there's a need for something and now I'm going to go address that need. And that kind of pushes us forward that life energy, if you will, that yeah. she kind of is inspired by uh, underlying need that's not being addressed. And that can sometimes exhibit itself as like a shadow or like, a, you know? Yeah, absolutely. A thousand percent of everything. We just yeah. said. So let me I just mean, remind we, people. We spend too much energy. Sorry, Dave, cut you we, okay, just, yeah. when my The one thing I would add to what you just said, which I completely agree with, is that we spend so much energy in our lives trying to resist 
truths about ourselves or truths about other people um, or truths about dynamics, um, trying to numb them with, uh, you know, drinking or with, with various compulsions um, or trying to compensate for them or trying to like, you know, uh, make it so that other people don't see them. Um, and, and all that energy, once you, first of all, it's pointless because truth is truth. Um, and it may not, you know, <laughs> so once you face truth, not only can your energy go elsewhere, but, um, you may not find that monster to be as scary as you assumed it would be. Um, or you may, right? And like, you know, some people's monsters are really, really intense and severe and, and you know, should be unpacked in a safe environment, whether that's in therapy or something, another intentional space. Um, not all of these burdens are, are equal. Um, but I think the process is always analogous. I mean, like the process is, is consistent. Yeah, yeah. I just remind people that this is the Truth to Power show and Ready for Brooklyn. Um, we are streaming for you live from home because of COVID, but uh, we, uh, um, you know, have a great show today with Noah Phillips. I suddenly realized my... Uh, Battery is low. Let me just quickly make sure that if you could just uh, say a few words on uh, on idea, I, I, Ida, and then uh, I'll be right back. Okay. Uh, Ida is the Institute for the Development of Human Arts. Um, I hope everyone is having a nice morning. I'd rather talk about how beautiful a morning it is. It's, it's, it's all blue skies. It's sunny. Still snow on the ground. I have to go shovel the walk after this. Um, but anyway, Ida is a um, collective. It's a nonprofit. Um, we have a training committee. We have a, a, a spring series coming up um, on global mental health, in which we hope to talk about behaviorism um, and the export of the biomedical model across the world. Hello, VJ, you're back. Hi, hi. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, so uh, tell us, continue, yeah, so I catch a little bit of this drift of this. Yeah, I was just talking about we have an upcoming series that we're still planning um, at IDEC uh, about the biomedical model and its export with globalization um, across the world. Uh, it's still sort of in development. Our last series was on systems thinking, um, and we had a course on, on uh, macro systems um, and healing macro systems and things like racism and systemic inequality. Um, the second one was on a very interesting model of sort of meso-level mental health treatment called uh, Open Dialogue, um, where which comes from, I think, Finland, um, where different if someone has a, a break or is in crisis or something like that, they um, call you know, all of their people around them, their family and their friends and everybody, and to just sort of like really be transparent about what everyone's experience is, um, as opposed to say calling 911 and having that person institutionalized for a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, that's another thing that uh, has been coming up this year with defund the police and be the idea of putting social workers 
in charge of responses to mental health inquiries, like when people have breaks and uh, having a social worker respond as opposed to, or at least have a social worker on task or on hand. So that then, but then that probably wouldn't be effective because the police will probably take over. But uh, we want to have a social worker kind of, you know, being the frontline person so that then they can respond uh, authentically and like more compassionately towards people who are in crisis rather than um, having people with guns respond. And even better yeah. than a social worker having a peer specialist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so and someone peers. who really understands that they don't have to escalate, they can de-escalate and they can kind of work with the person as a human being rather than as a, a potential threat, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah. So um, this is the Radio Fear Brooklyn, as I was saying. Uh, also, I want to tell people, if you're listening to the show over your computer, you can free yourself up by downloading the app on iPhone or Android. Um, you can make a donation to Radio Fear Brooklyn since we're a 501c3 nonprofit that's tax deductible to make a donation. Um, so you can make a donation to readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. So give, give, give. Um, also, uh, we have a sponsor, uh, City Running Tours. Uh, if you live in New York City and run for either fun or exercise, here's a way to learn something about the neighborhood you're getting your workout in. Uh, City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running tours designated with locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhoods. And these unique running tours offer an opportunity to learn the history of the neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose some tours of 23 neighborhoods, including the East Village, the Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For information on running tours, see the list of neighborhoods and full tour schedule. Check out their website at cityrunningtours.com slash New York City. I believe they also have an Instagram every Sunday at Saturday at 10 a.m. Um, let's check out their Instagram. Um, let's see, where is this thing? It's under... Uh, Instagram.com slash city running tours. Very great, great. So you have about 20 more minutes. So why don't we do a little bit of uh, uh, talking a little bit about uh, what you're watching or what you're consuming in the during the pandemic or if you're watching anything or consuming anything in any medium. Uh, if, if, you're, if there's anything you wanted to plug in, talk a little bit about. Um, I haven't watched TV since the summer, I'm kind of proud to say. Yeah, good, good. But have you been reading anything? Maybe something for your uh, degree program? Well, I was... Um, well, let me think about that. Yeah. I just, I just started a... Um, started, I didn't start it, but I we just started uh, a book club about mental health. Yeah. A book that we read, and uh, shout out to Rebecca Wellner, <laughs> um, who's my friend, my dear friend from high school who started it. Um, but we just read The Body Keeps the Score, which is a pretty well-known book about um, trauma uh, and how it sort of stays in your body and how there's lots of different ways to address it other than with pills. Um, what else am I reading? I've been reading some poetry. Um, I love this book, The Rag and Bone Shop of a Heart, which my dad gave me a long time ago, which has edited by um, Robert Bly and others. Uh, what am I reading? The Rag and Bone Shop of the Heart, right? Yeah. It's yeah, a very it's a wonderful anthology. Anthology, anthology. Okay, yeah. Um, my... Um, I don't know. 
I haven't really been reading that much, actually. Well, one thing I always want to plug and as a book and as a autobiography of Malcolm X. That's oh, oh, it's really good. Yeah, yeah, good. You've been revisiting that. Yeah, good, good. And then uh, one thing I want to plug is Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock, which is a very good book. We talks about kind of we read selections from it for the class because I'm also doing a master's in mental health counseling or mental health counseling rather than social work at Naropa University. So I'm doing an online hybrid degree with them. And we, we talked a little bit about radical acceptance and uh, I started reading the book. And basically the idea being that, you know, we can accept ourselves fully and accept where we're going fully. And that, that doesn't have to negate the idea that we're still in a work in progress. Like the two things can go hand in hand, like the mm -hmm. two things of accepting ourselves fully as being valid and, you know, kind of totally acceptable and not broken you know we have this concept in society that there's something broken inside of us but we can accept ourselves you know as being fully whole and at the same time we can still understand that there's things that we can continue to improve about and that holding those two spaces can be difficult sometimes for many people because second we think about growth we think we think about you know kind of um you know, learning, we think about so what's lacking inside of us, at least, you know, and that that focus should be shifted towards, you know, living authentically and living fully in life. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I love that sounds, that sounds like a great book. Um, I think a lot about how, um, you know, there's so much work to do in the world, right? There are so many injustices, climate change, you know, weighs heavily on, on me and, and friends of mine and um, how, trying to, and of course we have so many internal issues, everybody does, um, and but trying to address those problems from a place of shame and guilt mm. doesn't get results the way that trying to grow from a place of love and excitement. Yeah. Right, like those are, it, it's a shift and it's kind of subtle sometimes and it's hard to hold on to, um, but it's really exciting, right? So like accepting, growing, personal growth from a standpoint of like, I'm great and I need to get better. It's so different than I suck and I need to suck less. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I think one thing I was thinking about the other day is about like, you know, in Buddhism, at least there's a lot of focus on like love and compassion for others. And I think it's important, but also I think that a lot of times people get confused that they have to, that means they have to go out there and have conversations or engage people in a way that's uncomfortable for them. And I think that, you know, when we reconcile the ways in which we relate with people, even when we're alone, like the ways in which we kind of hold spaces for the people in our lives when we're with them or when we're alone, um, kind of reconciling those relationships, those internal relationships we have with people so that then we feel at peace when we're with them. And we don't feel like they're like invading our privacy in the sense of like judging us. When people say critical things, it's easy to hold it in ourselves and be like, and then repeat that critical comment. Because the mind is very negatively biased, I think. Like that's also one of the literature that we've been reading. The idea that um, evolution has made us, given us a negative bias. So we tend to be more aware of threats. We tend to be more aware of confusion than we are of loving relationships or than of positive relationships. I think it's biologically, uh, the, the author of that article was arguing that it's biologically constructed that, you know, based on the K-Man days, they would 
you know, they could be killed from a threat, but they, you know, a, a positive thing was not giving them that much. I don't buy that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I don't buy that. I, I, I think that that, I mean, that sounds really similar in my mind to people who say, oh, yeah, it's human nature for us to be so you know, crappy to one another. You know, <laughs> like if you, if you perceive threats all the time, you know, yeah, we evolved from monkeys and monkeys are really competitive and yeah. so that therefore it's inevitable that we're going to be competitive. Like no bullshit. I think, I mean, yeah. where I think, I think humans have as much as, if not more capacity for love and growth and connection and positivity. And, um, then we, that we do for, you know, competition and fear and resentment and negativity. I, um, I'm not trying to diminish the importance of of that monkey brain stuff that tells you yeah. that, that that's hyper vigilant and like, but no, we're not. It's not biologically determined for us to be miserable. Yeah, <laughs> be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be yeah. miserable. We just have to. I mean, what we have. If if we do have a negative bias, in my view, it's it's cultural. It's because our culture keeps us small. Our, our culture keeps us um, in toxic relationships with one another and with ourselves. It's not because we have to be this way. Yeah, and also it seems like that's the essential uh, discussion of nature versus nurture, of like how, um, to what extent or to what degree do our personalities and our experiences cultivated from the biological uh, imperative and to what extent are we kind of cultured into it? And like to some extent, uh, you know, we kind of get to a place where everything is kind of curated by, there may be some, there may be some deep tendencies towards certain experiences, but to what extent is that volume on that DNA strand turned up? That's also something I remember I, that caught my eye in a, in, a, in a talk I think I was listening to, that we all have DNA within us, but to what extent is the volume in that DNA turned up? And, mm. you know, and that comes from the nurture aspects of it. And not yeah. just our own nurturing, but also the nurturing of our parents. And yeah, our yeah. Parents. And yeah, it's, I mean. All heritage our whole heritage and yeah. what our mother was feeling, you know, when we were in, in her womb. And, and, yeah. Uh, I think there's a whole study of that epigenetics, I think it's called mm -hmm. or epi, yeah. Epi, yeah, epigenetics. Yeah. So it's like how the culture in which, you know, the feelings and the emotions and the climate in which the mother was experiencing during our, uh, in utero experience. Yeah. Yeah, my view is that nature gives us great capacity for, for anything. I mean, I think that the human, the human brain, is such an amazing place to live. <laughs> yeah. You know, we can do so many different things, so many different things, and like the the menu of options presented to us by our society is, and by any society, is going to have its limitations. Mm. Um, it's just so paltry um, compared to what we could put our our minds do. Yeah, yeah, and then also it's like when we think about. Um, also, we're talking a little bit about like passion and life, and and how it relates with this kind of like um, 
you know, like how it's connected to these darker shadows or darker negative, and we should even release or let go of the positive negative matrix, matrix, and we should try to find new vocabulary and we should talk about it. Because when we think about positive and negative, it seems like there's a very binary set up there that we've mm -hmm. been discussing about how disrupting our binary is important and like being able to understand that um, there's just information being sent from the beyond, if you will, and that they're, they're like, um, I don't know, how would, you, how would you put it if we were to disrupt kind of like that binary, what are we replacing it with? Like well, how we, how we, what kind of language are we talking about? I think we're talking about very, very old language and like yeah. reclaiming really old language instead of um, creating new language. I mean, shout out to Audrey Demola, who's been on your show before. Yeah. Right. But she talks a lot about, and she's a poet and um, organizer and person in Queens. And uh, she talks a lot about the underworld, right. And on these sort of, and, and myth, and she's not the only one who thinks about it this way, but she's the one who really introduced me to thinking about it this way. Um, Robert Bly also talks about, you know, you go into the underworld mm. uh, and you come out again. And if you go into the underworld on purpose, you can control when you come out again. If you're dragged kicking and screaming into the underworld, you may not be able to control when you can come out again. And you yeah. need to have an adventure down there to, to escape. Um, but myth, once you, once you move past yeah, what do you replace the sort of binary of good and bad with? Like you go back in time to the, the systems of navigating our psyche that co-evolved with us, which are storytelling, myth, ritual. Um, that's where the the lines between good and evil are, are much blurrier and more um, rich. Yeah, yeah. And also I would say that... Um... When we think about the underworld, we think about receiving messages, receiving information. Like, mm -hmm. I think that's a very good way to put it because, um, you know, it's like these kinds of things are like beyond that most have to do with our, our connection to the Leviathan the society. So all of us are connected in that undercurrent, that under the underbelly of like like a river that connects us all. Mm -hmm. So we are able to I mean, to what extent do we believe in? um like psychic phenomena or like being able to know things or that we don't we can't know or, or these kinds of things are like what we might call uncanny you know uh phenomena um and i think that's sort of the opening up because when we like open up our mind in whatever way it may be we're kind of opening ourselves to this kind of what we call what we think what we traditionally think of as psychic phenomena mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah what is your opinion yeah. on that? Or do you, do you resist that? Or do you accept that? On uh, psychic, do I resist psychic phenomena? Yeah, part yeah. Of me definitely do. I mean, part the, the very rational part of me is like, what the psychic yeah. phenomena? What ESP? What are you talking about? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. We have to be precise in our language about what we're talking about. But well, I know. But, like, but also, but I mean, that's just the rational part of me, though. Because yeah. I mean, because the thing is that, like, you know, the rational part of me would never have thought that I would have had certain experiences, right? Like yeah. when I was on these entheogens, for instance, right? Or like, some, I've also had other experiences, psychic experiences that were not um, substance related. Uh, and that's part of what I mean about your mind and your brain is an amazing place and capable of all kinds of different things. If you use all the tools in there. Yeah. Right? Like 
from a purely rational standpoint, you're not going to meet a ghost and have a conversation with a spirit. Like, yeah. it's not, it's not going to feel the way that your rational mind is going to anticipate it feeling. It's going to feel different because you're outside, you're suspending that part of yourself and embracing a different part of yourself. Um, I kind of got lost in, in some weeds there, but. Yeah, I was going to say that I think that, you know, the way that Hollywood represents things is never the way, you know, it actually happens. You know, I mean, we have this impression of like the sensationalization of like spirit walking or like spirit communication and you know the point is these things are deeply psychic phenomena you know they're deeply psychological phenomena i mean um and the psychic phenomena is part of psychological phenomena that's actually just a, a just an edge to it mm -hmm. and then of course like for example like when you look at a, a show and they show the person like communicating with someone who's visually present there you know i mean that doesn't necessarily happen to everyone where they actually see the person with their eyes, their eye consciousness. Yeah. You know, they may just be talking to the person mentally in a psychic way, you know, but not necessarily, they may not manifest as a visual phenomena, you know, or something like that. You know, like the point is, it all, it all manifests in us in different ways. And I can just reveal that in September of like 2019, uh, I had a little bit of premonition that something really difficult, something really bad was coming down the pipeline. And I really had a little bit of experience where I was like, something really like life changing was gonna happen in the next few months. And then of course it did, you know, and I don't know whether or not I can subscribe that as psychic or not, but definitely I had a feeling that Trump was gonna mishandle something and that something was gonna happen very big in the next few months in like around Labor Day uh, of, of 2019. So I know like that was just an experience I had that you know, I felt very disturbed by and I felt very like something's happening, something's going to happen. And I didn't exactly know what, but I knew like there was like a, there was like a pivoting point at that point where it's like we could have done something about it early if we knew about it early on. But then once you pass that point of no return, it's like this too difficult to control. Well, we have like deeply intuitive parts of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. We're deeply, deeply connected. And so in my 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 i guess my actual answer about the psychic phenomena stuff is that um whether or not my my rational mind accepts it mm. um these experiences these phenomena have been part of the human journey all the way back yeah. um and they're part of every human culture around the world um and they the ones that tend to be more um in touch with nature are the ones that uh embrace it more um but regardless they're they're there they co-evolve with us um mm. they serve some purpose um whether we whether whether a, a spirit is real in the way that my like skeptical mind wants it to be is one question but like it's 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 information like you said and it's only when we are identified with the parts of ourselves that are good and rational and like, you know, cookie cutter that, um, that all the other stuff becomes a problem. Yeah. And it, it perceives as a threat. Yeah, totally, totally. And I think that when we have like too much of a cookie cutter aspects to it, that it has to be like this or rigid in our, in our approach, then we won't be able to understand what's really happening. 
And when we kind of open mind, we kind of go with the flow, we kind of like experience these things fully in our bodies, in our minds, then we're able to understand, okay, you know, putting labels on it, putting understandings on it, come later, comes later after we've experienced it fully. You know, yeah. then we can look back and be like, all right, that was this, this was that, and parse it out. But um, yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you so much. We only have two more minutes, so I'm just gonna tell everyone, this is the Truth to Power show, Radio Free Brooklyn. We've been talking to Noah Phillips, who's a um, mental health worker and, and, and counselor, um, you know, uh, an organizer, artist, and barter voyager. I love that, as we talked about. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, so we can listen every Monday at 8 a.m. We rebroadcast on Thursday at 9 a.m., although that's subject to change, so you can check out your... Uh, you can check out the Radio for Brooklyn website to check that. But uh, no, if you want to say in the last minute, any last thoughts, and then we'll sign off. Uh, last thoughts? No, no, no. It's been a pleasure. Um, I hope that anyone who's listening is um, enjoyed hearing from us. Um, and if you're curious about the Gift in the Moon show, um, I feel bad that I didn't really plug any of the artists at all. But uh, we had Megan Bent, Valeria Aedo, Jonathan Sims. Um, Angela Rogers, Betty Eastland, uh, Ellen Wetmore, um, kind of like walk around the gallery in my head. Um, now that I said some people, I can't <laughs> anyone out. But anyway, um, it's a flux factory. Um, it, it's been an amazing show, a variety of media. Oh, Alo Corey. Okay. Um, and. Hi. Don't have an Instagram to plug, but you can go to. I guess I don't know what else to say. If you're...